Hi there, welcome back. Let's see what's going on in Modest Touch. I've been adding exhibits the past couple hours. And I just have to take a break and get caught up on the new on the news. It's great news these days about Diaper Donald being exposed. This is uh, this is Midas Touch. Fifteen odd minutes ago, Diaper Don's name appears yet again as Secret Surface. Secret Surface. I like it. It blows my mind. Blow my mind. Samuel, shopping like a billionaire. Shopping like a billionaire. Shopping like a billionaire. Love that commercial. Projection and confession. It is so inherent in the Trump DNA. For example, Don Jr. Like posted the following on January 6th. Happy fake insurrection day. The first ever insurrection with armed tour guides and unarmed participants. I do hope it was the start of something real, though, where people realize their government is not what they thought it to be, to unite, to take back their country. And then, of course, there are, from January 6th, the text messages between Don Jr. and Mark Meadows and others telling them, please do something, you've got to get my dad to stop. But everything these Trump and, and, and MAGAs do, it's all projection and confession. Like this posted by Don Jr. today when a new uh, batch of emails were released in connection with uh, the Virginia Jufferi Epstein case that uh, have lots of references to Donald Trump. It's now one of the top stories in both Drudge as well as the New York Post. Here's what Don Jr. writes. He says, he quotes the New York Post article, which mentions his dad and his dad's connections to this most recent uh, document dump of, of documents from the Jafari case. And Don Jr. goes, this seems like a big deal, and if true, why has nothing been done about it? And then there is, then he references uh, Clinton, Prince Andrews, and Richard Branson, but his dad's name appeared alongside that on the most recent batch of documents that were released on Monday in connection with the civil case. By the way, did you know this fact about Virginia Jafari? Virginia Jafari worked at Mar-a-Lago. That's how Jafari met Epstein, because Epstein lived right around the corner. I noticed that. Like, he lived very close. A couple of years ago now. meeting Epstein because she worked at Mar-a-Lago. More on that in a moment. But there was a community note to Don Jr.'s post which says that Donald Trump is also one of the persons mentioned in the new court documents. This is the actual headline of the article. And the actual headline of that New York Post article mentions Donald Trump's name in it. And here's the New York Post article that uh, is, is just released um, that mentions Donald Trump's name in it. It talks about how the accuser claims that Trump, Clinton, and Prince Andrew were involved. Um, and it goes on to discuss how this individual by the name of Sarah Ransom uh, in various emails, in very graphic detail, mentioned Donald Trump. 
The article then goes on to say that Ransom then walked back the salacious allegation she made about Trump in an October 23rd, 2016 email with a New York Post columnist writing, quote, I would like to retract everything I have said to you and walk away from this. Only bad things and pain for my family would uh, come from going public is what uh, she then previously said. And I just want to report the facts here, because you're going to hear some other facts in a moment where we've been piecing this together here at the Midas Touch uh, Network. Uh, It goes on to say how in 2019, then Ransom admitted in a New Yorker article that she invented the tapes to draw attention uh, to the behavior, uh, she says right there. Donald Trump's uh, spokesperson denies these uh, baseless accusations. But this also follows Donald Trump's name appearing in prior deposition transcripts. And that we pointed out right here how um, Epstein brought one of his victims to one of the Trump casinos and then called Trump to get into the casino according to the deposition uh, testimony uh, here in case 1-15CV-07433 involving one of the uh, victims. In 2002, this is a quote directly from Donald Trump, Trump told New York Magazine that he thought Epstein was a quote, terrific guy, yeah. and noted his penchant for pursuing women on the younger side. So direct like him. Direct quote. I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. Terrific He's guy. a lot of fun to a be with. A lot of fun to it be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful Loves women to rape as much as I do. children together. And many of them are on the younger side. If you've been following our Think you're a pimp, as well, eh? we dug up this Fucking 1997 uh, article uh, from the British tabloids uh, right here. And uh, here is a- an article from 1997. Um, Trump's Brit of All Right, this is from the London. It says, uh, just Trump weeks after ditching his second wife, America's best-known billionaire, Donald Trump has fallen under the spell of a 20-year-old English girl, Trump, 50, who has failed in his bid to secure the services of Princess Diana's butler, Paul Burrell, was in search of another British trophy when he met London model Anuska de Georgia at a party in Manhattan. Several American millionaires already had their eyes on Anuska, but she was there with Robert Maxwell's daughter, Ghislaine, who was, in- who was introduced several of her friends She's to a the madam. property developer. And none of didn't his know. would-be rivals owned a vast mansion in Florida, like Donald does. Mar-a-Lago, where I have dined with him, and his outgoing Marla is enough to make any young girl go weak at the knees. After their meeting, Trump flew Madam Maxwell, referring to Ghislaine Maxwell as Matt, as a madam. Yeah. This is how the article is referring to it in 1997. <laughs> After their meeting, Trump flew Madam Maxwell oh. and the model south to the Sunshine State, where all three enjoyed a happy weekend uh, together. Sounds when they like returned to New York, Anuska was installed in one of Donald's many apartments there. Miss Day George likes older men. She went out once or twice with Joanna Lumley's ex-husband, Jeremy Lloyd, who's 45 years old senior. She was pimped out, basically. By Trump standards, it is already friendship. And Madam Maxwell introducing other uh, 
attractive friends to the property developer. Then you have Trump's quote in 2022 about Epstein. And this article from 1997 doesn't really even have that subtle of the coding right there. Also, it's worth mentioning that on the flight logs, Donald uh, Epstein's flight logs, Donald Trump's name appears seven times on the flight logs. And Just seven times. His name. Not right surprising. Here. I know that the Probably took his own helicopter like sometimes. To, um, try to invent that. I mean, look, Clinton, Branson, others were on the logs. I'm not defending their content. They're not running for the presidency of the United States right now. There's also. Other people's names who the MAGA Republicans are defaming, whose names are not on the list, who they try to claim is on the list. And, you know, interestingly, the entire QAnon They try to say that Robert Niro's on to there, too. kind of formed and forged around this idea as a way to protect Donald Trump by saying he's the one going after the bad guys. <laughs> but that's why he's with the bad guys all of the time. As I said, it's always projection and confession. And then you've seen I've done some stories about how even Donald Trump met Melania, just following the facts. I just think it's important that we piece this all together here at the Midas Touch. These stories have all appeared. Everything I'm saying here has appeared somewhere. But having to pull all of this together, I think, is such a critical thing. Because remember the New Year's party that was Donald Trump sitting next to this guy, Paolo Zampoli, which raised a lot of red flags to me, like it's a weird photo. So I'm like, what in the world? Who is this guy? So I Googled Melania is not at the at the holiday at the New Year's party. He's Trump's hanging out with Paolo Zampoli. Trump's doing the weird face in that photo. And then I wanted to see, like, okay, how did Donald Trump meet the who is this guy? And then that took me to this article. When Donald met Melania, Paolo was there, and it talked about how Paolo Zampoli ran a modeling agency in the 1990s where he would bring in foreign women, uh, specifically Eastern European women, to the United States, and then they would hold parties with wealthy American businessmen at clubs and, and introduce them together. And yeah, Pam basically Melania has four girls. For Apollo, he was one of the women, Eastern European women sex brought trafficking. In to America. And then she was there at one of the parties that was being thrown at a place called the, the Kit Kat Club, where the wealthy businessmen would attend, and Donald Trump attended that, and that's where he met Melania. Notably, Epstein claimed that he introduced Donald Trump to Melania, but probably so he was the one who introduced Donald Trump to Melania in the New York Times. Uh, seems to, from length from 2016, seems to credit Paolo Zampoli. And then that brought me to this article from The Guardian, Teen Models, Powerful Men in Private Dinners, when Trump hosted Here's What It Looked Like. In the early 1990s, Donald Trump judged the world's biggest modeling competition since hit by allegations of abuse. This article was from March of 2020. Yeah, he's stepping this in on the, the teenage girl. On September 1991, a large private yacht cruised towards They're the Statue of Liberty. It. it was clear, breezy evening, and from the upper deck of the Spirit of New York, a gold sunset could be seen glinting off the Manhattan skyline. Downstairs, a party was in flow. Scores of teenage girls in evening dresses and miniskirts, some as young as 14, danced under the disco lights. It could have been a high school prom were it not for the crowd of older men surrounding them. 
As the evening wore on, some of the men, many old enough to be the girl's father, or even the father's father, joined them on the dance floor, pressing themselves against the girls. One bald man in a suit wrapped his arms oh. around two young models, leering into a film camera that was documenting the evening. Quote, can you please get some beautiful women around me? The party aboard the Spirit of New York was one of several events that Donald Trump had boarded by attendance, with a group of 58 aspiring young models from September, and then it talks about how uh, Trump uh, attended his coordination with somebody named John Casablanca, who ran his own modeling agency involving <laughs> pimp, another young pimp. women. And, and so I, I provide all of those facts to say the name appears over and over and over again. The name appears over and over again. Look, Trump denies the allegation through his spokesperson um, regarding the most recent document dump that happened on Monday. But the name just keeps appearing over and over again. And MAGA Republicans want to weaponize this somehow against their opponents when, when Trump is all over it because it's the ultimate projection and confession. You know, and, and, and here's the thing. If Clinton was running for office, if Branson was running for office, if Bill Gates was running for office, I would also think that this is disqualifying behavior. It wouldn't even be a close call. They're not running for office. That's not the choices that we have to make right now. Donald Trump is seeking the highest office in the land. And as I've said on this and other videos, moral character is critical. There has to be moral character in the presidency. I've gotten a lot of comments. Also, hey, Ben, stop focusing on this stuff. Go back to focusing on the other stuff. And to that, my response is, no. I am. I am. 95% of the content that I do is on all the other stuff. Trump's threat to democracy, Trump's speeches, Trump's uh, behavior, Trump's posts. You know, there's, there's a lot of content that we cover here on the Biden Touch Network generally. I just don't want to be another media company that ignores this behavior. And that says, ah, that's Disgusting. old news. Ah, well, Fucking sex trafficker. I, I, I have a visceral disgust when I read stuff like this about him and what he was where he was who he was in what his background was other lecherous I, 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 I old men i can't just sit by and do nothing is my response to that i i, I feel morally obligated to bring these discussions to the fore i'm gonna cover everything else way more than this but i think these reports are important but you can share with me in the comments of course how you feel I'd love to hear from you. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 2 million subscribers. Like billion, Thanks to your support. And if you want to check us out at Patreon. Shopping like a billionaire, Ben. Touch, do that. <laughs> also hit that thumbs up button. That helps as well. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Oh. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. She don't Midas need Touch. no Instagram. Keep up with the most important news she of the day. She just uses just a gram. Follow us now. Okay. Look up what his grandfather was exclamation point Ben the apple don't far far
for lecherous old men. Trump tried to distract from imminent court loss. Okay. Deadline White House. Oh man. Almost out of juice. Really? Already? Shopping like a billionaire. Tim. Hi everyone, it's 4 o'clock in New York. I'm Ali Velshi in for Nicole Wallace. This week marks a watershed moment for special counsel Jack Smith's election case against Donald Trump. A three-judge panel will hear arguments on a question that's got some big stakes for democracy. Does the presidency confer, quote, absolute immunity, end quote, against prosecution for Trump's conduct while in office, as Trump's lawyers are arguing? Or is that claim not just constitutionally wrong, but also a license for future presidents to commit crimes while in office, as the Justice Department argues. And on the eve of a hearing on the question of whether Trump can be prosecuted for his actions while in office, we are learning incredible new details about what Donald Trump said on January 6th and what he did and did not do, thanks to testimony to the special counsel from some of Trump's closest aides, including his former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino. From that reporting, quote, sources said Scavino told, Scavino told defense investigators that as the violence began to escalate that day, Trump was, quote, not just interested in, end quote, in doing more to stop it. He was just not interested in doing more to stop it. Sources also said that the former Trump aide, Nick Luna, told federal investigators that when Trump was, he was leading that then-Vice President inciting Mike Pence had it. to be rushed to a secure location, Trump responded, so what? <laughs> Luna said, uh, sources said Luna saw as an unexpected willingness by Trump to let potential harm Sounds come about to right. loyalists as vice president. As the January 6th Select Committee showed, Trump saw the mob as, quote, my people. As I love the mob. Him saying, and as they said, anything. I love you. We love you. ABC News reports, according to what sources said, Scavino told Smith's team Trump was, quote, very angry that day. Not angry at what his supporters were doing to a pillar of American democracy, but still, the election was allegedly stolen from him and his supporters were angry on his behalf. Scavino described it all as very unsettling, sources said. Scavino also told the special counsel that he was the one who posted the tweet from Trump's account telling the rioters to, quote, stay peaceful. Once again, reporting from ABC, Scavino printed out proposed messages for Trump to post on Twitter, hoping that Trump would approve them despite his reluctance to write such posts himself, sources said. Yeah. The congressional wasn't probe gonna found do it. that even Trump's daughter, Ivanka, quote, to hang down to pets. the Oval Office dining room, end quote, to convince her father that issuing a message could discourage violence, as the congressional report put it. More than a half hour after Trump was first pressed to take some sort of action, Trump 
Finally, let's Gavino post a message on Trump's Twitter account telling supporters to support law enforcement and to stay peaceful. And that's when we start this uh, today with the National Investigative Reporter for the Washington Post, Carol Lennig, plus the Deputy, for, uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General and former United States Attorney Harry Lippman and former U.S. Senator and co-host of MSNBC's How to Win 2024 podcast, Claire McCaskill. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for being with us. Claire, good to have you back um, in the mix with us. Let's start with you. It's, it's um, on one hand, surprising. We're still getting new information. There's still, believe it or not, things about January 6th that we didn't completely know. But none of it is is good for Donald Trump. It all sort of doubles down on what we believe Donald Trump was and wasn't doing that day and his consciousness of how bad what was going on at the Capitol actually was. Well, I got to tell you, Ali, I don't think anybody should be surprised at this testimony. Uh, we know he, he loves to watch his televisions not. instead of actually do the work of being a president. We know he was sitting in that dining room right off the Oval Office watching television, seeing in real time the violence that was unfolding, police officers being attacked, and we know he did nothing. He loved it. And frankly, we've been seeing for Sleepful. years now. He was enjoying it. Yeah. He thought it was great. <laughs> he thought it was exactly what needed to happen. <laughs> he had no problem with yep. Pence being threatened. He's the one that was calling for him to be held accountable and calling him a coward and doing all the things that, that incited that mob to do the things they did that day, including chanting, hang Mike Pence. So I, I don't think any of this is surprising. You know what's shocking to me about it is Dan Scavino is still with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that for a minute. Imagine, I, I think about the rooms I've been in when uh, bad things were happening around the world and powerful people were in the room trying to figure out the best way forward. And I'm trying to imagine people in that room watching what that man was doing when he had an obligation to stop the violence and instead relishing it and still standing by him. What kind of guy is this? of the DOJ means we're going to see more evidence. Look, I think Claire is right that it's of a piece with the public record, but if you think of it through the vantage point of the prosecution, the one thing that Trump could maybe try through um, surrogates to claim at trial is it took him by surprise. He never knew this would right. happen. You've heard claims of that. It seems dubious, but you take Scavino and put him on the stand. Anyone who had that uh, attitude would, of course, have been mortified and done everything they could to stop it, not rejoice at it, say, who cares about Pence, etc. So in that sense, while it's of a piece with what we know, it is very, very 
very powerful evidence if you look at it through the prism of what Jack Smith has to prove at trial. It pretty much is a nail in the coffin of Trump's Yay. intent. Uh, Carol, I, I want to just remind people, this is stuff that people have seen before, but I, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson um, telling, uh, is talking about what happened when Mark Meadows, her boss, uh, found out that, that people were calling for, for Mike Pence to be hanged and, and what, uh, what the response was. Let's just, let's just play that. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. We're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. <laughs> To which Pat said something, this is acting crazy. <laughs> we need to be doing something more. Carol, again, we, we knew much of this. Uh, obviously, we knew that from Cassidy Hutchinson. But as you put meat on these bones, what you're, you're, what seems to be happening is Donald Trump's uh, ability to say, I was not aware of what was going on and what people's intentions are is melting away. Right, Ali, and I feel like, you know, Claire and Harry have hit the nail on the head. It's of a piece. We are not surprised because, I mean, in a book that Phil Rucker, my co-author, and I wrote at the end of 2020, forgive me, in the beginning of 2021, we summarized this final year and this moment. Every single person that was with Donald Trump that day, and of course we didn't know about Scavino, was uh, shocked that the president seemed to basically put himself in his TV dining room and watch like he was popping popcorn in his mouth. Interested and, and perhaps irritated that he had lost the election, but certainly... Uh, encouraged by the outpouring of people who were violently trying to Love take it. matters into their own hands and block the peaceful transfer power, which is what Donald Trump had been trying to do for two months since finding out that he had lost the election. I also think it's, it's, it's really important to recognize the gradations of each individual who was dealing with it. Let's go through a couple of them. You rightly pointed out what Pat Cipollone's reaction was. We've got to do effing more, as Cassidy Hutchinson describes it. Um, you have Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, sort of shaking his head and said, I, I can't get him to do anything. You've got Ivanka Trump, as we reported in our book, you know, I alone can fix it. Uh, Ivanka Trump going down repeatedly trying to get her father to take some sort of action. And ultimately, in a way, succeeding because he, he tapes, uh, after multiple unsuccessful and unacceptable tries, he tapes a recording to his viewers uh, later in the afternoon saying that they should stand down, although he thanks them uh, and tells them that they're great people. And Every also... single individual who came in contact with the president that day, his most close advisors, his tightest people, his daughter, wanted him to do something, and he resisted. Resisted doing something because, as we all know, as he told us uh, when we went to interview Donald Trump in April of 2021, I wanted what the rioters wanted. I wanted what they wanted, which was to stop this election from being affirmed.
Let me ask you about that, Harry. Um, the gradations, the the uh, not only the people involved, but the, the the number of ways in which Trump was asked to rein this back. I want to quote some more from this uh, ABC News report, uh, which says after unsuccessfully trying for up to 20 minutes to persuade Donald Trump to release some sort of calming statement, Scavino and others walked out of the dining room, leaving Trump alone, sources said. That's when, according to sources, Trump posted a message on his Twitter account saying that Pence, quote, didn't have the courage to do what should have been done, end quote. Trump's aides told investigators they were shocked by the post. Aside from Trump, Scavino was the only other person with access to Trump's Twitter account, and he was often the one actually posting messages to it. So when the message about Pence popped up, Cipollone, another White House attorney, uh, and another White House attorney raced to find Scavino, demanding to know why he would post that in the midst of such a precarious situation, sources said. Some of Trump's aides then returned to the dining room to explain to Trump that a public attack on Pence was, quote, not what we need, end quote, as Scavino put it to Smith's team. But it's true, Trump responded, sources told ABC News. Tell me about the influence of that. We're now not we're not now, now not arguing about what Trump knew or what he didn't know. But the idea that there were those, as uh, Carol says, around him who were trying to encourage him to do the wrong right thing. And he was actively doing the wrong thing. Yeah, and we are getting within the shadow, we'll see what happens at the uh, D.C. Circuit Appeal tomorrow, but in the shadow of the actual trial. So I, again, want to think of this through the prism of the pres- of the proof Jack Smith will present to the jury, because the gradations point that Carol's making basically... Tri- translates into who's telling the jury what and you get a guy like Scavino an absolute confirmed loyalist his whole life owes everything to Donald Trump and when people like him are giving up these details it's all the more powerful one real rich little point that we didn't know until today he's the guy in in Trump's immunity papers he talks a big deal about oh I said peaceful I said peaceful it turns out he didn't even say that the person who actually puts it out there is Scavino and Scavino will testify to that so these are the sorts of rich details that just bury him in front of a jury and that's the way I at least uh, begin to think of all these latest revelations, not what we know in the public right. or from January 6th, but how Jack Smith is going to convict Donald Trump. You know, the thing that sticks out to me, uh, Claire, is not, uh, Claire the, is not the, 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 the something that was particularly legal that came out of this reporting, but it's this uh, reporting about uh, from the same report that says, according to sources, when speaking with Smith's team, Scavino recalled telling Trump in a phone call the night of January 6th, quote, this is all your legacy here. And there's smoke coming out of the Capitol, end quote. Scavino hoped Trump would finally help facilitate a peaceful transfer of power, sources said. It's not just that Trump doesn't seem to care that that was going to be his legacy. He's embraced the worst parts of what happened on January 6th. He's called the uh, the people who've been convicted heroes. He refers to them as hostages, hey, which is kind of remarkable because uh, they're convicted. Uh, he, he doesn't. He's not embarrassed by it. So when there's smoke that. coming out of the Capitol and Scavino tells him this is your legacy, I, 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 I'm, I'm most baffled by the idea that it appears he didn't care or or actually liked it. No, I think he. I think he wants this as his legacy. I think oh, he yeah. is proud that he caused this. I think he is proud that 
people were willing to go to these links on his behalf. They were willing to break the law and attack Trump's police officers. Ego. I don't think there was an ounce of remorse of Donald Trump about inciting an insurrection and fighting uh, the voters of this country and the result that they demanded with their votes in the presidential election. And, you know, now, I mean, as, as Harry said, we now know, I assumed that the tweet about Pence that came after the violence had begun and after there were real threats to Mike Pence, I assumed that maybe Scavino had, had done that tweet. We now know that it was Donald Trump's thumbs that tweeted that tweet at a point in time that Pence was under danger. That is powerful proof. He cannot run from this now. And the fact that he is owning it on the campaign trail, and now yeah. he's got his sycophants. I mean, Stefanik said yesterday she called him hostage. Yeah. Um, this, this whole this, this false narrative that somehow this is the weaponization of government when really... Carolyn, as Harry says, some of the facts that we've got in this new reporting are newish to us. We didn't know the specifics of it, but they're not, the, the contours are not new at all, including some of your own reporting in your book, I Alone Can Fix It, about the outside, the advisors like Kellyanne Conway and others who tried to call, who tried to send Donald Trump a message uh, and either couldn't get through or figured he didn't want to hear it, uh, that, that a, a little tweet here is not going to solve the problem. He's going to actually have to do something to stop the violence. Uh, that that part we've known for some time. Yes, we have. And, and also, I'll have to say, we know from other great reporting about Fox News and discovery in a lawsuit. Uh, all the Fox News hosts that wanted to burnish Donald Trump's reputation and legacy and ride along with him to his reelection, they were texting. Uh, Don Jr. was texting uh, at this time. Get him to do something. This is the end of the legacy. You know, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Don Jr. himself. Uh, Remember those moments because those were pretty pithy. I want to underscore, if I can, Allie, something that Harry said a minute ago about uh, the proof Jack Smith has to bring. Of all the things in this new reporting uh, that I think we're going to see at trial, and I know I don't normally speculate, but I'm going to just guess that if we see something at that trial about all of these texts, it will be that last one. Donald Trump, when everybody left the room and after they had tried to encourage him to be peaceful, decided instead to, after 2 o'clock, after the Capitol Police Chief had called a code red riot and asked for emergency help from the National Guard, Donald Trump, as, as Claire said beautifully, thumbed uh, another basically sick them on, on the vice president, which if you remember from your own excellent live television feeds, uh, a rioter read aloud from a bullhorn, read Donald Trump's text to the kind of frothing crowd. I think that's my big guess today, that that will be read at trial and that will be explained in detail. Appreciate the analysis from you all. Carol Lennig and Harry Littman, we appreciate that. Thank you both for kicking us off today. Claire is going to stick around for the hour. Uh, she has some time to make up with us. We haven't seen her for a while. Uh, when we come back, Trump's appearance.
hearing tomorrow on the case of presidential immunity is not the only time we're going to see the ex-president this week. He'll be attending several courtrooms, adding more grist to his grievance-filled presidential campaign. We're going to look at that coming. One week to go before voting starts in the 2024 election cycle. Donald Trump is turning his legal troubles into campaign stops in an attempt to air his grievances directly to the voters. Tomorrow, as we've discussed, he's expected to be in Washington, D.C. for arguments over his claim of presidential... Big of presidential immunity in his federal election interference case. On Wednesday, he set to counter-program the Republican primary debate with a town hall on Fox News. Thursday, he'll be back in New York for closing arguments in his civil fraud trial. And on Monday, a week from now, votes will be cast in the Iowa caucus. Next Tuesday, a trial is set to begin to determine the damages in E. Jean Carroll's defamation case against Trump. And that's just the next eight days. Joining me now at the table, MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Claire remains with us. Thank you to both of you. Uh, Lisa, let's start with the three things, the three legal obligations he's got in the next eight days and what his role is going to be in them or not. Because we're never really sure about Donald Trump and where he shows up and what he's going to do. So we've got, uh, we've got oral arguments in the presidential appeal uh, tomorrow, immunity case. We've got closing arguments in New York on January 11th. And then we've got uh, Tuesday, Eugene Carroll. Let's start with the premise of your question, which is framing this as legal obligations, because I want to take issue with that. They're not obligations. In fact, in none of these circumstances does former President Trump have to attend at all. And to the extent that he and his proxies are characterizing these as requirements or obligations, folks like you and I should push back, particularly where it comes to each of these three things. So tomorrow, when he shows up at the appeal of his immunity claims, he will be there solely as a spectator. To the extent that he makes political hay out of it outside the courtroom, that's a different thing entirely. But he has no formal role at the appeal. No, it's just an oral argument where lawyers for both Jack Smith and for former President Trump will face a battery of questions from a three-judge panel of the federal appeals court in D.C. On Thursday, similarly, we've got final or closing arguments in that New York civil fraud trial brought by the New York Attorney General. Again, former President Trump has no role there. It is a series of arguments or presentations that will be made to Judge Arthur Ingram. That was a non-jury trial. And then presumably, when it's over or on breaks, we can expect the former president to do what he's done all along in that case, which is to face the cameras in the hallway and turn that into (laughs) somewhere between a runway and an ongoing fundraiser as it goes along. The following Tuesday, January 16th, that's the big question for me. That is the second Eugene Carroll trial, as you've noted. Tuesday should start with jury selection. Whether he shows up or not is an open question. But as you and I were discussing before the segment began, federal court is a really different place than state court. And I don't believe that former President Trump will have the latitude Mm -hmm. to turn that courthouse into the sort of circus-like atmosphere that he has succeeded in with respect to the civil fraud trial. Because if he wanted to make an appearance, he'd have to set it up. It would have to be a stage somewhere, and he'd have to tell people. I can't imagine that the security committee of the Southern District of New York will allow former President Trump 
to hold any sort of press availability right. within the confines of that courthouse. Mm -hmm. If right. he wants to do it, he does it outside. He'll have to it's arrange that between the Secret Service, yeah. the New York Police Department, etc. But it's not going to happen on their watch in that building. Senator McCaskill, if he didn't have these things that, they, that Donald Trump claims are sort of legal obligations, but are, as Lisa has said, are not, he'd still have a really busy week. He is not participating in the debates for the Iowa caucus, in you know which he's leading by uh, by very high double digits, uh, but he's going to do his own counter-programming on Fox, uh, and then he's got the Iowa caucus on Monday. What do you make of the, the political the side of this stupid Republicans are. Yeah, so I think what Lisa says is really important for us to remember. Donald Trump is attending these uh, events, not because he needs to, not because he has to, not because it's in his legal best interest, but because he wants the coverage this week leading up to Iowa to be all about his narrative that he is a victim in the of government line, weaponization against him. That, you know, they're trying to keep me out of office. They're trying to keep me from you oh, fighting for you. He God. is looking at the Iowa caucuses as his moment to definitively become the nominee. If he dominates in Iowa, then, you know, I don't care if Nikki Haley has momentum. If he dominates in Iowa, she would have to win New Hampshire and win South Carolina. And there isn't any polling that indicated she's in a position to do that. So we're going to talk more about these events if he's there, him. and he knows that. Mm -hmm. This is all political strategy on his point. So it has nothing right to do with not his legal peril. It has everything to do with him wanting to become president. Because you know what? These arguments he's making in front of these federal uh, judges, if he's president, it all goes away. He waves a wand, and there's no more federal prosecution against him. No more convictions against him. Pardons himself. So he can't fix Georgia, because a, a, a president can't fix, fix state charges. But this is all about his campaign. He sees these as essential campaign stops, having nothing to do with the legality. It's a, it's a hard week, Lisa, to talk about things that are going on in February, but February 8th is turning out to be a fairly important day. That's when the Supreme Court is going to hear uh, arguments about the, uh, the the Colorado, they're going to review the decision about the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to say that Donald Trump isn't qualified. Uh, Colorado and Maine have made similar decisions, but in both cases they've said these decisions are stayed until the Supreme Court chimes in, which means that the ballots in Colorado are getting printed with Donald Trump's name on them. That's right. And the ballots in Colorado will continue to exist that way unless and until the Supreme Court says something differently. Colorado has its primary on March 5th. Right. That ironically is the day after the federal election interference case where he is advancing those immunity claims. They stayed but is otherwise scheduled to go forward. All of these things are starting to converge on themselves. Ali, if you're having trouble keeping it straight in your head, you're not alone. I am too. And that's because the entire calendar is blanketed with Trump legal proceedings and the ways in which they all interact with one another. Yeah. I personally don't think that the Supreme Court will agree that Colorado was right to disqualify him, but I also do think that by the time we get to February 8th, right we will likely have a decision from the D.C. Circuit on his claim that he didn't use the prosecution and he'll lose on that one. You you know, that? I don't intend to go up against Lisa about what, uh, somebody, what a court might or might not do, but Donald Trump and his surrogates have been, or mostly his surrogates, have been hinting that there are uh, Supreme Court justices who owe Donald Trump some stuff. Uh, in fact, they've targeted Brett Kavanaugh in particular to say, don't make the wrong decision here. You're in your job because of Trump. Well, some of the most respected conservative judges in the country have advanced the same position that the Colorado Supreme Court took. 
So, and, and this case was not brought by left-wing Democrats. It was brought by Republican voters. This is really a case about the law. It is first impression, and I don't know if I disagree with my uh, fellow lawyer that you have on today in saying that I think the Supreme Court will look for an off-ramp. I don't think the Supreme Court is ready to deny Donald Trump a place on the ballot. Um, having said that, I also agree with her that he's got a, a much bigger problem with his immunity claims. Looking at his briefs, looking at what he's claiming on immunity, it, you know, as we say in the Ozarks, that dog don't hunt. Um, and it is going to be, I think, very difficult for him to maintain uh, the legal position that somehow, because he was the sitting president of the United States, he could somehow prevent votes from being counted in this country and democracy having its way. Here are three tips I use for ensuring my toddlers are getting the nutrients they need to grow. Tip 1. Muffin tin meals. If you have little ones that are weary of trying new things, this is a great place to start. Try filling each muffin cup with great options from every food category while also prevent votes from being counted in this country and democracy having its way. Uh, Lisa, I had a conversation with uh, Michael Ludig, one of the conservative jurists who uh, Claire was sort of referring to, uh, about the 14th Amendment case. Here's what he told me on the weekend. This will be one of the most consequential Supreme Court decisions for both American democracy and for American politics since the founding of the nation. The disqualification clause is perhaps the, the most democratic provision in the Constitution, Allie. By the same token, it's the disqualification clause of the Constitution that tells us that an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution is perhaps the most anti-democratic conduct possible in our democracy. So how does the Supreme Court square that? Because what, what Ludic's saying is that if you have a rebellion, that's the opposite of what we think democracy is. Does the Supreme Court have to determine that Donald Trump was not involved in an insurrection or rebellion like, like Colorado did? No, and it doesn't have to definitively decide that he did. Its job is as a reviewing court, Ali. All it has to determine is whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court significantly in coming to that conclusion. And one of the reasons that Claire and I agree that the Supreme Court will likely take a different off-ramp from this court is solely coming to the conclusion that Colorado was within its power to reach those facts doesn't necessitate other states reaching the same facts. It may be that if they were to uphold the Colorado decision, for all of the reasons that Judge Ludig has shared with you, what would happen then is not like an automatic light switch going off and suddenly Donald Trump is disqualified everywhere. It's more like a massive power outage with certain groups operating and others not, right? The ensuing amount of litigation over where he should and should not be disqualified and whether he's stopped from arguing that he did or did not participate in an insurrection could itself be monumental electoral chaos. That's one of the reasons I think the Supreme Court as many of us have observed, then you can't say that they're lacking in contortionism.
It's astounding the knots into which some lawmakers have publicly tied themselves on the topic of January the 6th. Congressman Troy Nails in the blue shirt, the guy on the right next to the guys with guns, by the way, experienced some of that the day the barricade, that day at the, at the barricade that was just inside the House chamber fending off the rioters. And yet he would go on to vote against certifying the election results and would later call the death of Ashley Babbitt a murder. New video obtained in response to a request oh from God. NBC News shows Fucking exactly idiots. how harrowing those moments were for Troy Nails and his Republican colleague, Mark Wayne Mullen. We're real And speaking of Republicans who've changed their tune since January 6th, how about Elise Stefanik? On Meet the Press this weekend, the number four Republican in the House was presented with her own comments that evening, insisting violence was anti-American. And yet, when asked if she'd certify the results of the 2024 election, here's how she responded. Just to be very clear, I don't hear you committed to certifying the election results. Will you only commit to certify the results? If they're constitutional, it means that they are constitutional. What we saw in 
I still think deep inside Elise Stefanik is that person, yet for some reason she's doing this act on the national stage. And I think we know what that reason is. It seems like she is attempting to stay in the X-Rays and the races so that she can be in his administration. But, Allie, I also want to hone in on what you said in that interview. About not certifying the election or not committing to certify it is the tremor that could lead to the earthquake that could cause a tsunami after the election. They are already laying the groundwork that maybe they don't have to certify a Joe Biden win if Biden wins.
I also understand the media concerns about transparency, and I recognize I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. I commit to doing better. This was my medical procedure, and I take full responsibility for my decision about disclosure, end quote. There are growing calls for accountability on both sides of the aisle as a matter of national security, but as we enter an election year, some Republicans are jumping at the opportunity to level criticism at the White House with the House Republican Conference Chair, wait for it, Elise Stefanik, calling on Austin to resign. We're back now with uh, with Miles and with uh, Claire McCaskill. Uh, Miles, oh, I would like to resign. talk to you, but I, I was, it was important to have you here today because of your role in national security when you were in government. Um, there is something different about the defense secretary than about any other cabinet uh, member uh, in that the defense secretary has specific powers and authorities that many of us who watch, watch movies think only the president has. That's right. I mean, look, the, the National Command Authority and the connective tissue between the President of the United States and U.S. troops and the U.S. nuclear arsenal and all of the activities that are undertaken in the Defense Department to protect the United States is really different than any other department and agency. So it's the one place in government above all others outside of the White House where day-to-day -day tracking of senior officials is actually really important. And make no mistake, adversaries know that around holidays and other times when people go on vacation, that's the time to strike. That's the time to do something to catch people off guard. And the fact that this took place over a holiday and happened gives extra concerns. It's when you know folks, again, tend to be a little bit less vigilant. And so that's why at DOD, uh, above all other agencies, there really is supposed to be that minute-by-minute -minute tracking of who is in charge when and where they are. I mean, even at DHS, when I was chief of staff there, my movements were tracked, and they were notified to other senior officials, so people knew where I was. Clearly, the ball was dropped here. Clearly, it had potential national security implications. I think it's too far. Uh, it, it's going too far to politicize this and call for the secretary's firing. But questions need to be answered, and there still shouldn't be the question marks hovering over this that there are at the moment. Uh, let's talk about this. Generally speaking, um, Get rid uh, of them all. a guy who's showed up for the job. It's been a uniquely difficult uh, time to be the defense secretary of the United States. We're involved in two wars and have two potential ones on the horizon if anything were to go wrong. Uh, what do you make of how this was handled and what should be done? Well, first of all, he made a big mistake. Uh, he wanted to keep something private that was medical, and it was wrong. He should have handled it differently. He has much acknowledged that. Now, the question is, does he deserve leaving the office because of it? Well, watch carefully the people on the Armed Services Committee. Watch the Republicans on the Armed Services Committee. It's one thing for Elise Stefanik, um, who I think we've previously identified as someone who has the integrity of a club. It's one thing for her to say that he could resign. It's a completely different thing for Roger Wicker, for example, the chairman, uh, the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. He's asked for a briefing. I think that's appropriate. I think on a bipartisan basis, I think the, the, the staff members are going to want to be briefed about exactly what happened and why and making sure it doesn't happen again. But I would be surprised if the Republicans that serve on the Armed Services Committee, they know that he, this man has a lot of respect at the Pentagon and among the Armed Services. They know he's done a good job leading. Uh, they know this is a very difficult time to change leadership at the military uh, because of what's going on in the world. I'd be surprised if you saw that, if you see them politic politically take this up like Elise Stefanik has. Thanks to both of you, uh, Miles Taylor and Claire McCaskill. Uh, we
podcast, by the way, How to Win 2024, is available. Claire and her co-host, Jen Palmieri, dive into just who Donald Trump would consider and should consider as his running mate. All you have to do is scan the QR code on your screen to listen to that. Quick break for us. We'll be right back. Give me a fucking break. channel that is a frivolous motion want to be the chapin like a billionaire 